Hello and welcome to Art Monthly's talking show. Uh, today I'm joined by Chris Vosilak, Alex Fletcher and Maria Walsh. Uh, Maria Walsh will be talking about Adam Chodzko's work, um, Deep Above, uh, recently made um, in partnership with Invisible Dust. Chris Vosilak will be talking about Cecily, uh, Jesse Brennan and Nathan Coley and their recent uh, artist books. And Alex Fletcher will be talking about uh, the Raven Row show, uh, The Inoperative Community. Uh, we'll start with you, if I may, Alex. Um, I think the project uh, that this show sets up is quite broad and quite deep um, and consists of quite a large amount of works. Um, if we can begin by sort of staking out a little bit of um, what what kind of um, parameters uh, this show sets up and how it sort of functions. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> so the inoperative community... I thought of a good way of uh, thinking about it actually would be to think of Peter Wallen's uh, 1975 essay, The Two Avant-Gardes, which is a way of thinking about the way that Kidner, um, Dan Kidner, the creator of the show, uh, positions uh, two avant-gardes in this show together, which is the kind of the avant-gardes of uh, French auteurist cinema and also the um, experimental filmmaking of the co-ops of the kind of the London and the New York uh, co-op schools and it connects and both those things connect to this idea of community which uh, which he kind of uses uh, he uses this concept of the inoperative community from the philosopher Jean-Luc Nancy's uh, essay of the same title in order to in order to use it to unify uh, a lot of the the discrete um, works that are on show, uh, which is uh, over, as the curatorial statement says, over fifty hours of material. Yeah, I mean, it's the in terms of the actual content. There's a lot to see here, and um, I think yeah, it's worth sort of talking about that. What he calls the long seventies, this long period of time, which sort of he brackets between 1968 and I think 1983 or four. Um, and how that sort of encompasses the period or trajectory of art practice or filmmaking practice that is, um, well, let's, I think if we talk about that and then maybe talk about how that maybe fits in relation to Jean-Luc Nancy's theories and also how then that's been reinterpreted, maybe that's a way forward for us. So talk about maybe the parameters that initially that sort of that Dan Kidner set up. <clears throat> yeah, so um, the idea of that you said of the long 1970s and that pe that pe specific periodization by Dan Kidner is double in the sense that he's interested in both the kind of the politics of that time but also the the um uh the artworks or the film works that that it gave rise to and so it's a question the long 1970s for him is what um referring to Nancy he sees as the dissolution conflagration of community and how these these uh uh, individual works uh, somehow in uh, embody this. What what I found problematic to jump to that uh, uh, quickly is that Nancy's essay itself, although beginning in this kind of historical periodization, quite quickly becomes a way for him to produce a much more basic ontological category of community, which is connected to f finitude and all of these other philosophical questions. And because of that basicness, it, it allows, uh, I think, too easy uh, a route to find 
examples of it because you could literally point to anything and say it 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 does exemplify this basic concept of community yeah so and let's let's maybe pin down a bit more about actually what then the works and how they're displayed and how uh, they're shown in that way because in a sense I see the show consisting almost of a series of discrete installation pieces followed by almost like a mini film festival situated in the in the back of Raven Row Spaces, which is this large sort of screening area. Um, do you want to talk a bit about um, the specific installation pieces, how they function in the space, and also how in ways that you feel that they situate themselves against this screening area? Yeah, so I think there's uh, three installation-oriented pieces, and they are uh, Erica Beckman's You the Better from 1983, which is um, a kind of... You watch it uh, through a large door frame while on a bench outside and it has this kind of flashing light box. The second one is Leslie Thornton's uh, film that was made from the the dates of 1984-2015 called Peggy and Fred in Hell, which is exhibited in a a kind of space that's cut across by a wall which has a... um, uh, uh, one-sided mirror so that people viewing the film could be glimpsed from outside but not vice versa and the, the only film that the only uh, film work that was shown on monitors was Journal of the Plague Year which was uh, a response to the UK media's reporting of the AIDS crisis and that's by Stuart Marshall yeah yep. Um, and then in addition to that there's a couple of more sort of discrete screening areas to watch films by Luke Fowler and um, Lavdi yeah. Albert Serra and the and then this um as you mentioned this uh screening room this larger screening room downstairs which had uh its own um screening uh kind of days uh for each day of the week which ran from 11 to 7 in the evening yeah in terms of the you know the amount of work here there is an awful well let's say there's a there's a fair amount of work to see i mean you know I mean, most of us are fairly gallery, you know, experienced at seeing film festivals or going to Biennale. So, you know, in terms of the actual scale, it's not it's not necessarily an uncomfortable amount of material, but let's say it's an unexpected amount of material uh, for, say, a given exhibition, um, and specifically one that revolves around film. Um, do you want to talk about what you, how you felt the ways in which duration informed the kind of viewing experience for you? Yeah. <clears throat> Just to mention as well that the um, that 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 that's, that it's a kind of conventional uh, experience we have now of uh, art spaces or biennales and things like that. I think it's slightly different in the sense, as, as you mentioned, that all of the works were moving image works in the sense that it requires a certain mode of attention that, the, say, the biennale doesn't. Mm. In the sense that you kind of have a you have a break between uh, moving image works to, in order to read, in order to look in different ways. Mm. Uh, but yeah, as as you said as well, the, the, what I found interesting was this presence of uh, duration and the way that duration was put in tension with uh, what he what Dan Kidner refers to, uh, kind of, which is which derives from uh, Walter Benjamin as the distracted viewing uh, of a gallery space, especially with works such as Lev Diaz's, which are uh, over eight hours long, and it kind of almost. Literally, the film forces the architecture of the building to stay open mm. longer, and and then you have other works by Albert Serra, which are around, I think, five hours long. Uh, yeah. And 
you know, let's take apart a little bit more about the some of the works and what what they show. I mean, you briefly mentioned Institute Marshall's work, The Year of the Plague, uh, which chronicles the kind of the ways in which AIDS was reported in the British media. Uh, and I don't think it's a work that's been seen for twenty years, and um, and it's been first. You know, this is the first installation or incarnation of that for that period of time. So, you know, it does uncover certain. Um, yeah, works that perhaps hadn't been seen before in London for a great deal of time. Um, we're talking about a little bit how this sort of reveals a kind of archive or a return to a point in history. Um, what you know, if we're talking about the long, the long decade, um, and also the in, uh, the interest in that particular decade, um, why that suddenly come back into um, conversation, really, and. Why Why do we think, or why is this an interest in this particular decade? I think Dan Kidner talks a little bit about how the 80s was more interested in sort of subverting ho- more Hollywood conventions uh, from an artistic, in artistic practices and how this period now kind of represents something more of an activist or mm-hmm. yeah, uh, <clears throat> resistant sort of strategy. Um, do you think, and this is what I was thinking more, is that Jean-Luc Nancy's position of the inoperative community is about um, what well, he talks about this sort of nostalgia for that period, and is that also part of the reflected positioning in this show? If that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I. Th- mm, what? Can I interject? Sure. Or not? Not quite an interjection, but maybe just to add to that question, because yeah. I feel like um, maybe in, I mean with the amount, like you're talking about the duration of the the works in the show and all that sort of stuff as well. I'm just wondering, the sense we're talking about, there's a historical finitude to it and there's a sheer amount of it. And so there's this kind of historical weight that's given to it mm-hmm. just through that, I guess. And then what I end up becoming interested in is the fact that, I mean, even if it's using the Nancy phrase, but the fact that he keeps including the the in the the inoperative community when it's not necessarily one community, I suppose. And then that becomes the most operative part of it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's just an observation, but maybe to put that to you as well as the sense of is that part of the show in terms of giving a historical weight to itself, almost. Yeah, <clears throat> but I I agree with um, the the importance of the work that Duncan has done in digging out of uh, lots of these kinds mm-hmm. of rare, uh, hard to see films such as the Stuart Marshall film you mentioned uh, and others the, there's this um, this kind of bring to light of this uh, Zanzibar group as mm. well uh, it's really interesting especially because actually because I mentioned the um, Peter Wallen uh, to avant-garde essay the, the, the example he gives of the work a work that doesn't fit into the two camps of the two avant-garde is he gives Jackie Reynolds uh, two times which is a work that's shown as part of the screening room uh, for, for the Zanzibar group that um, that uh, Dan Kidner shows, but then I feel like all of that hard work that he does is is somehow kind of I don't know mitigated by by the deluge of more familiar films. So although the the Jean Pierre Gorin uh, kind of uh, series of films, Potter and Cabengo, Routine Pleasures, and My Crazy Life, all in different ways touch on this question of community, the the they are. Uh, you know, there are, it's a Criterion DVD box set that you can that you can purchase, and there's, and that's similar with Eric Baudelaire's Anabasis film that's shown, and uh, Jean-Luc Godard's Issyette Elias, uh, and Johan 
Grim and Prez's dial history. There's a kind of there's an unnecessariness to to some of the excess that happens in the screening room, which I think uh, takes away from uh, some of the really uh, amazing works that are shown, such as uh, I thought Leslie Thornton's uh, Peg in Fred and Hell was really yeah. a beautiful film. Yeah, it's a great film. I mean, talk a little bit about how the gestation period of that, because it is actually quite a unique <clears throat> project in many ways that it spans thirty years of how um, filmic practice. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't know much more than the than the description that's that's in the 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 hat, the the gallery guide, and uh, what you said. Uh, the, it's it's a problem with the show that you kind of ha- you get this kind of you have this kind of grazing of information mm. of of films, and it's and it is a it's a way into to all of these different histories. And like um, uh, Chris mentioned about that the community, then there is this kind of covering over of the fact that the these histories are plural. There is a there is a danger that, although I think this idea of unifying these histories uh, within this space, there is a kind of danger of this convergence somehow uh, homogenizing them or or ossifying. Uh, yeah. Or, yeah, because because what it's a symptom of, and it's the same with he, Kidna mentions this in relationship to that they're all projected on di- uh, digital projectors. It's that. It's kind of symptomatic of the convergence of the digital that all of these different mediums then also are kind of converged within the digital projector or the video projector. And a book I mention in the review, which is a really good history of the kind of infiltration of cinema and moving image into the exhibition space, which is Erica Bolson's Exhibiting Cinema and Contemporary Art. She has, she has, she has this focus on the importance of the video projector and the way it allowed moving image to so easily kind of uh, step in to uh, the contemporary art space. And I think there's, and I think although there's lots of in- incredible work that's done in this show, there's a kind of, all of those those tensions aren't kind of pushed in any direction or they're, they're left to kind of sit together problematically, which is fine as well. Yeah, because you talk, I mean, going back to more of the thematic sort of, you talk about the way in which the viewer, in a way, is almost atomized by the the extent of the material, um, which is an, I thought was an interesting, almost, uh, yeah, way into it, really, which is that somehow the amount of material, rather than bringing in a collective sense, actually does the inverse and actually creates this alienation mm-hmm. uh, within the viewer. Do you want to talk a bit about how that situates itself in the show for you. Yeah, the, the, that's that w- would be another uh, symptom that I would see at work in the show, which would be this kind of this anxiety or feeling you have, like like ac- akin to the feeling you have when online and having this huge array of things that you could be watching, of knowing that you could be watching something else. And you could be watching something else in the other room. So, but so it's atomizing in that sense. It's also atomizing in the sense that the the kind of the discursive community that happens around works, like what's happening here, actually, yeah. uh, because there's so much to, to latch on to, to kind of focal points is so difficult mm. that it kind of it's atomizing in that sense as well. But it's also atomizing in the kind of spatial sense that you're kind of sitting in rooms as if like a kind of you know, avant-garde multiplex cinema or something, sometimes by yourself, you know. Uh, and it's interesting what what then cinema is uh, kind of standing in for in the show because it's standing in for lots of different things because it's standing in for a, a kind of 
dispersed or lost community, the co-op, the avant-garde, but it's also standing in for uh, the kind of what what Benjamin would have called uh, a, a kind of public sphere, which in the very early days of cinema, but it's also standing in for that kind of bad object that art is providing a refuge for these works to escape from and, and to kind of be uh, saved or something mm. like that. I mean, I think it's, it's a good point, I think. I mean, I certainly found refuge to some extent because, you know, it's wet, it's cold, it's the middle of December, you know, there's this quite beautiful space to situate, you know, to sort of sit in and watch these films unfold for long periods of time. And these films are, to some, you know, they are actually interesting and they, you know, lots to think about. And I saw it with a friend, and there was lots to talk about there too, you know. So in effect, I agree with you in a way that it actually performs a sort of function um, of refuge. Um, but um, anyhow, I mean, that's that's sort of been more my experience with that show, really. But um, but you're right. I mean, I think to me, it's more about how you extend the conversation with yourself and also with the other person. I mean, I went with someone mm. else, so it's kind of it was quite it's nice. It's in that way yeah. as well, because. For- the, the the public sphereness of the cinema is that you're sitting in a cinema with strangers. Mm. It's not that you go with your friend to then continue a conversation. There's something there's something for me odd about that experience, but also just the kind of. I mean, it, Erica Bolson is very good on this in her, the, the, the in the in her book on uh, cinema and contemporary art when she talks about what cinema is, what the cinema is, and it's. It's not just the projected image. It's it's all of these kind of things that are part of the apparatus, like the times, the tickets, the the, and all of these other things, uh, and kind of going to a gallery because you know that it's going to be on the loop. That film's going to be on loop, and you're going to appear for the next time it's going to screen. It kind of doesn't doesn't quite have the same effect that that going to a cinema does for me. Well, yeah, it's not. I mean, apart from the screening area where there's a ticket or timed section where you perhaps would uh, maybe schedule your visit, but yeah, a looped experience is is I think quite a different, um, yeah, viewing experience and at least one like, that. If you took out the three installation works, I don't know why he couldn't have done it in a cinema space or a yeah, or even yeah. I said I said in the review even an online platform such that things are appearing like uh, vdrome dot org. Where the where, or or even something like Mubi, that it kind of mm. it seem it would seem more convivial to what the, the amount of material he wants to show and the kind of way he's trying to to kind of bring them together. It seems more like a film screening series rather than a kind of curated exhibition. Okay, well maybe we'll come back uh, to some of uh, the inoperative community's points. Oh, Maria, do you want to? Can I just make yeah, one little yeah, point um, about, about it? Uh, I, I think it's it's interesting the kind of events that are happening um, around it, and uh, like the special events uh, where they two, have. Two uh, yeah, there were two events. I don't know if there's going to be more, but uh, those events um, which I went to, uh, there was a sense of that idea of being in a group of people that you didn't know because it was packed and <clears> they were and everybody you know would stay for the duration and they had a kind of a specialness to them uh, they were screenings by um, Leslie Thornton mm-hmm. and Jackie Raynell who yeah. we've just sort of mentioned so they were screening kind of other work uh, that might relate to uh, well uh, Leslie Thornton did screen well one 
small section of Peggy and Fred that isn't in this particular edit that's in the exhibition. And I thought they were quite interesting because uh, a lot of the more theoretical uh, concepts were gone into more in those discussions and also the idea of a kind of living history of uh, of this other uh, possibility of another space of the moving image that isn't uh, located within uh, Peter Wallen's quite you know polemical I think mm-hmm. uh, separation in, of the two avant-gardes mm-hmm. so yeah I found them really interesting just can the can idea just that you know the study day almost like a kind of a study yeah. day kind of thing these other segments of things that um, yeah so I just want to bring that just up just to quickly say one more thing is that uh, that's what I mean by the end when I say that it not only negates what happens in the space of cinema but it also negates what the what the promises the kind of the so of the socialities that the art space affords are events like uh, Maria just mentioned and it's the lack of those events which is kind of weird in the sense that maybe there could have been less uh, less films shown and more more events like that which were part of the exhibition which would have, which mm. have made it a much stronger uh, you know it would have it would have produced a much stronger community mm. <laughs> okay well maybe we'll come back to it but uh, for the meantime let's draw, draw close to that particular subject and move to uh, Maria talking about Adam Chodzko's uh, recent film Deep Above um, Maria, I know you've had a long day today, so we'll, we'll, we will try and keep this as light as possible. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, probably, I'll probably keep it as light uh, um, so, uh, as, we'll, as possible. Uh, let's talk a little bit. Uh, I think maybe some people are familiar with Adam Chodzko's work. Um, this film is available to watch online, uh, so listeners, you can actually screen, your, screen it this evening, mm. should you wish. Um, uh, but let's talk a little bit about what this film is and uh, what of you might expect watching it. Yeah, well, I think this film... Um, is interesting on many levels. Uh, maybe one level that I didn't write about in my review, or um, because uh, I, that wasn't the focus of it. It's interesting in terms of um, which I might come back to the idea of art as research. Mm. Um, I think. Well, what I've written about in the review is this film uh, is ostensibly a film addressing climate change, so that automatically makes you think about an agenda for the film you know yeah. that it's it's kind of already got some kind of um function in a way and and the commissioning body um invisible dust uh, they were set up in 2009 um to sort of bring art to bear on the environment and they've commissioned people like Elizabeth Price, you know, as well-known mm. artists to make work who aren't necessarily, uh, say, making work about the issues that um, they're being commissioned in, in this case to produce work in relation to. Uh, and then it's, you know, it's part funded by the Wellcome uh, Trusts, uh, the Wellcome Trust Arts Award. So again, this is a, you know, a particular commissioning body, yeah. if you like, uh, and they're interested in that relation between art and science, um, which isn't, and this brings me back to this idea of research and funding. This is, this is a, a stream, if you like, of funding that's um, 
well, available really yeah. for making expensive pieces of, you know, moving image costs money. Mm. So, um, so it's interesting on that level as well. And what I think, um, I mean, I've seen some of Chodzko's work before and I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with the kinds of vaguely interests that he has in things like um, sort of hypnosis, uh, kind of esoteric sort of things, um, almost, yeah. Yeah, the outer reaches uh, out, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, of, of psychic phenomenon. Yeah. And what I think is really interesting about this uh, film is that how he has brought those interests to bear on what is uh, on the agenda, if you like, of a lot of uh, art bodies, including art colleges, actually, mm. and institutions, the idea of climate change, sustainability, uh, research council. These are the key terms mm. that are, you know, impact on audiences. These are the key sort of like uh, terms under which the relationship between art and science is being uh, funded. And um, it's interesting how... What I liked about this piece, in a way, is but how it didn't... Those, just to mm. draw back a little, do yeah. you think those funding bodies are, in a sense, then determining or shaping the practice? Is that... They can do, yeah. yeah. In, uh, and so what this, I yeah. think, what, what this film achieves is uh, managing to bring those sort of um, more, it, that interest in the paranormal and, yeah. and sort of other psychic phenomena into a place where they might not normally be thought about um, and that was quite interesting because, yeah, I mean, I know uh, that artists working with climate change can often illustrate it. Yeah, and you talk a little bit about the the, the sort of pitfall, really, of film itself. And film, yeah. anyway, is yeah. already a kind of, uh, you know, uh, I mean, that's it's both attractive for being a kind of insidious, seductive medium, uh, but that's also uh, the kind of problematics about how it, um, uh, yeah, kind of instructs you how mm. to think and, and creates impact in a quite insidious kind of way. That was its very nature. Yeah. Well, at least that's the way it was developed. So in a way, the seductive or even propagandist yeah. mentality or possibilities in this are in a way picked upon or sort of... Oh, they're yeah. implicit. Uh, yeah. And it's really interesting because all of the things to do with um, how uh, an, a film might instruct you to think are actually being played out within the film itself, particularly in the two voiceovers, mm -hmm. uh, one man, one woman, um, who actually act almost like um, guides to this, uh, like, if you, you know, thinking of the paranormal, these are guides to mm. the underworld. The underworld here is climate change. And they tell you what to do with your body while you watch the film and how to look or not look at the images. So, so they're not, the image and soundtrack are not always in sync. I mean, it's not like they're just simply telling you what you're looking at. Sometimes it's not quite the same. Sometimes it is. But they are instructing you how to behave, um, and this is the idea of film as a kind of an instructional um, uh, yeah. mechanism, the apparatus of film and seduction, hypnosis. I mean, they literally try to put you under hypnosis, um, and it's quite pleasant in a way to... Shall I go on, or Absolutely. do you want to ask yeah, something yeah, else? Yeah. Because the other thing, in a way, I mean, climate change, there are, you know, there's lots of... In the film, the film is comprised of images culled 
lot from the internet, but some documentary images shot specially for the film, um, digital renderings of kind of what looked like code or synaptic mm. activity, brain kind of. Uh, so um, what's interesting is that uh, it's quite pleasant in a way to, um, you know, you're kind of induced literally into this kind of hypnotic state, uh, which you could, you'd be probably, I mean, that the cinema is set up for that, you know, the idea mm. of the dark room. You, we were talking earlier about refuge, mm. you know, it's a wet outside, yeah. you have a comfortable seat, um, it's a plush venue. So, you, you know, you can sit back, you relax. And, you know, perhaps the time... As well. The duration, yeah, yeah, you know, it's tolerable. I think that's always comfortable well, to know. Well, this is an hour yeah. as opposed to these um, yeah. five-hour... Uh, but then there's other things one could say about these very long mm. films in terms of duration. Uh, but th but this... So you're going to stay for the... Um, oh, sorry, it's a half hour. Yeah. It was an hour. Um, the event I went to was an hour because the film was followed by uh, a panel discussion. Yeah. So, um, but the voiceovers are telling you that you're going to feel this way anyway. So it's kind of within the film mm -hmm. itself. And what's what's pleasant as well then, you see, is so you're watching these images. Sometimes then you're not being told what to think and it's this kind of, you know, you're lulled back into this sort of viewing position and there's lots of shots of... Uh, of uh, we might call them emissions, smoke. Mm. Um, and the interesting thing is... Um, and I might ramble on a bit now, so you know, do do stop me if uh, is that, yeah. Some of them you can identify them because they're uh, some of the shot. There's the shots are quite static, and these are the uh, documentary shots. Um, uh, I believe that uh, Adam Chotsko went to China to shoot, uh, mm. so he does shoot these kinds of emissions from factories. Then there are these close-up shots of emissions, so you're kind of feeling this what you would think. Of, as this kind of toxic atmosphere and when the voiceovers do come in they are kind of telling you that you're going to be uh, you know you could feel this um, it's going to be difficult to breathe or, or you know you're kind of thinking about your body yeah. the whole time but of course the emissions are not all let's say toxic uh, some of them were taken from these thermal spas in Japan and I think even without knowing that, there is something in the film in which the what might be the toxic and negative is the same medium as what could be healing mm. and not toxic at all. And I think the film itself works in this way, that it's both A kind of uh, a healing space, but also a sort of a, a critical space, but using the same kinds of motifs. So they could be read in a very contradictory way. They could be taken in either direction. Mm. They're neither one nor the other. So there's always a kind of strange ambivalence as well circulating within the within the film itself as a film. And you as a, a viewer are literally being instructed uh, to almost like feel this way as you go through the film, which... Sorry. Yeah. No. Which is something, I mean, that's why uh, I was interested in um, checking it out, actually, because um, I'm quite interested in this idea of uh, poison and cure being the, from the same material. Yeah. I mean, and I think this is what he's playing. Yeah. I think he's playing with this idea in the film.
Yeah, and a certain, you're right. I think there's a certain, I mean, it sounds almost corny to say there's a certain beauty in this, you know, I mean, I'm thinking now of Antonio News, The Red Desert, you yeah. know, um, and this sort of this smog or fo fog-like environment and the kind of inherent sort of, I think you're right, this lulled, I mean, I found it incredibly almost soporific towards the end. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, these whispering voices, you know, um, yeah, incredibly. And I think that is the seductive space of how this imagery is played out. And you're right, this lack of distinction between these two things almost, uh, yeah, you kind of lulled, as you said, into this questionable history. Yeah, I, I'm thinking more about what you, you touch upon uh your own sort of ambivalence to this impending sense of threats. Mm. Yeah. Sorry, the threat, the did threat you say? The threat of the eco-ecological outcome of... Yes. Uh, well, I mean, that's... In terms of imagery, you see, images and a lot of the uh, opening uh, sequence that I write about, they're very short um, images from the internet, mainly taken uh, drone imagery of, uh, have you seen the film of, of landscape and um, burning landscape this and film, things? Have you? This film, yeah. yeah. Yes, I have, yeah. So, I mean, there is in, in itself, uh, you can say, yes, that's damage, but then it, it's, I mean, you know, we it's the technological sublime has been around for a long time. There is a kind of a, uh, a kind of a toxic beauty to these mm. things as well. Then there's the kind of personal, the, another documentary sequence is of a family in a kitchen and the male voiceover has this kind of very insidious thing about uh, feeling guilty about personal um, so effects on the environment like driving um, uh, and taking the car instead of walking, that kind of thing. You know, because we're, we're kind of told as a society that it's our responsibility. Mm. So we do. Th so it's this idea that uh, he, he's. I mean, the book, the film itself is also inspired by, partly inspired by a book, George Marshall's book. Don't even think about it. Why our brains are wired to ignore climate change, mm. and the panel event that I went to was followed by a, a discussion with a, a psychoanalyst who has edited a book. Um, Sally Weintraub is it? Sally Weintraub, yeah. yeah. Um, it's about climate, yeah, climate change. Uh, what is it? Engaging, Engaging with, with climate change. So, uh, I mean, in psychoanalysis, she's talking about dis disavowal. George Marshall is, in a way, talking about it in, as well, but in a more pragmatic way, in the sense that uh, we ignore these things because they're too much for us to take on. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? This notion of how the futurity of our we, it's we displace our you know we can't we're disavowing the immediate present we can't acknowledge or and i think this idea of trying to invent narratives so mm. that we can kind of cling or kind of picture the idea of present generations is an interesting aspect to what you sort of pick upon i know you say it's not necessarily implicit to this work yeah but i think in a way um so I think I think the work does uh, sort of try to give some kind of well, representation mm. in some way to uh, that anxiety, actually, uh, of disavowal, mm. because um, it's too much to take on. It makes it could, you know, it could make your life unbearable. So that's why, you know, well, we just, dis you yeah. know, we pretend it's not happening. But then there's also something I didn't really go into in, in the article uh, because uh, 
well, except just vaguely. Um, I mean, I was listening to the radio the other night about climate change because it's on every other night. But there was a really interesting discussion with um, Ewan Davis had various people on. Um, And it's, I mean, on the one hand, there's this idea, oh, we're all responsible and we've got to clean up our act. But then on the other hand, um, and, and George Marshall apparently says, and this is in the film as well, this idea of, um, well, we can blame the corporations. Yeah. And Naomi Klein sort of writes oh, about yeah, that in No Logo, No Future. Anyway, no. Uh, so she's been writing about that as well, which is why then a lot of people don't want to go in to, uh, dealing with climate change because it's seen as like a left conspiracy, this kind of denial. Mm. But even if you're not uh, thinking it's a left conspiracy, uh, the point is that... Um, Yeah, there's this idea, well, you can sort of blame, you know, the corporations. And in in a psychoanalytic sense, that would be like, you know, well, you can blame your parents in a way. Mm. It's not your fault. Um, However, uh, going back to this program I was listening to in the background the other night, what struck me, uh, and I can't really go into any detail here, but what struck me is that I'm always a bit suspect about this idea that uh, it's our responsibility, actually, uh, putting my cards on the table. Because a lot of the things we, I mean, really, what we we, there are things we can do, but they're not the things we're doing, like recycling. Yeah. Um, This sometimes pacifies our guilt, actually. But recycling is another way of disavowing what's going on, because recycling ends up in China. Mm. It goes on container ships. <laughs> it's a whole. Yeah, it's a series uh, of displacements, series of displacements it, yeah. in a way. And I suppose, I mean, what we can do is like, I suppose, lobbying or, you know, raising, yeah. uh, really lobbying governments in a way. Because what was on this program was that these were all kind of, uh, they were um, involved in engineering, inventions, the actual uh, other forms of energy, solar energy. And they were all saying, all agreeing, that uh, things have moved on uh, in that field to su- in such a since 2010 uh, to such a degree that things that were seen as like impossible yeah. um, are now very possible, both financially and actually. And it's just a matter of getting on with, uh, you know, these other forms of energy. They're not. Um, Expen- like we've been led to believe these things are expensive, things have to be this way. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, this film has certainly made me more aware of climate change discussions on the radio. <laughs> so it worked. <laughs> it worked. It w- so, it w- yeah, it worked, it worked because it worked on a certain level because I wasn't really paying much attention to these discussions yeah. um, about solar energy. Um, so... And and I'll just to finalise, just say that the audience and this relates maybe to this idea of, you know, the public or the public sphere, like it was in Bristol where the premiere was. So, um, you know, some people did know each other, but it was a collection of people who came from different places and gathered there at that moment. And it was um, there was a a great sense of kind of positive energy. Mm. People were they weren't an art audience and. The film, uh, they could see it. Uh, they thought it, they they didn't see it as a piece of uh, propaganda. Because I spoke to some people afterwards, they saw it as a piece of art, and they uh, 
thought it did have an impact mm. and related to the kinds of things that they were involved, other other activities that they were involved in in terms of lobbying, uh, etc. And uh, I thought that was really interesting for me as well okay. to be in that audience. Well, let's picking up on a non-art audience is um, moving on uh, to uh, Chris Pipewasilak and his review two two artist books, uh, one by Jesse Jesse Brennan and another by Nathan Coley, um, and they both, in a way, uh, look at gentrification from different different points. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if they both deliberately set out to do that. I think Jesse Brennan's did, um, yeah. and the, the the title of her piece itself is Regeneration. It was, and I mean, both of the books are. I mean, there's kind of a lot of similarities in the sense that they're both from artist projects and they're both documenting artist projects, um, but then both evidence very different ways of working anyway. Um, so, say with Brennan, she was uh, commissioned and did an exhibition, Yeah. Um, but then I think the exhibition itself was based on lots of conversations and interactions, and I think the book itself then became... Yeah, so Jesse was situated at the Robin Hood Gardens Estate, which was designed by Alison and Peter Smithson. Is yes, that correct? Yeah, and it's yeah. So this is in Poplar, um, and it's big, been quite a big sort of architectural cause um, in that a lot of uh, yeah. big architects stand. I mean, it is a sort of brutalist masterpiece, let's say. Um, but then it's being torn down, and it's been refused listed status several times, mm. um, and so. Uh, I mean, but then this is kind of something like, say, in one of the interviews in the book with the resident. You know, he mm. he didn't enjoy living there, but then he sees these books that say how amazing the place he lives is, and so there's this you know dissonance between what you know what you're experiencing <laughs> and what you're supposed to be yeah. experiencing. Let's say, and um, I mean, I, that's why I, I did enjoy the book. I mean, partially because I'm familiar with the place and have done projects there as well. It okay. is one of those odd. But, you know, it, it's one of those places mm. that, yeah, I think, as I tried to say in the piece, I think artists are attracted to places like that as well. And that becomes part of the problem as well. It's like when you start to work in a place like that, it might just mean the beginning of the end, really. Well, yeah. two things. In a sense, as well, it helps highlight, you know, the value of something, too. Mm. You know, an artist can lend or give a sense of value that perhaps if it wasn't, credited in the same way perhaps well I think maybe that yeah sense of value is kind of what was at stake mm. maybe in both of these projects I suppose in that sense where um, Brennan went in uh, very much interested in just having engagement to sort of figure things out with this well, this building mm. and the set of residents there and which you know was, it, she knew was being torn mm. down but she knew also that she didn't want to mark it with any sort of permanent work and wanted the outcomes to be themselves discursive, let's say. So kind of a, a sort of self-awareness of what the outcome would be. Mm. Um, whereas in uh, contrast, I suppose, Nathan Coley's was a new building that was mm. going up. And um, in that case, he was commissioned to create something for the building. And, and so made a permanent sculpture on the roof of the building, but then also decided to gift new residents with a sort of mini version of the sculpture as well. And the book sort of unpicks a bit of the history to that site that now no longer has any, well, well it's kind of lost yeah, its history so, in a way. So the title of the book is To the Bramley Family of Fristonia, and the majority of the book is dedicated to the history mm. of Fristonia, which is near this new development around the corner, mm. um, which was a kind of, um, I suppose, a set of abandoned buildings that were taken over uh, 
in I think the uh, 60s and 70s, mm. and then they became a housing co-op, and they tried to become an independent country. You know these sorts of things as yeah, well. This sort of idea. I, I love the uh, what's it? The Car Breakers Art Gallery. I'd love yeah. to see what actually they made in that particular space. But um, well, it, it, I mean, but it was very much a kind of community-run. You know. It, quite run-down houses, mm. people just getting on with things. They'd have, you know, circus acts and stuff in the street as well, it seemed. And so there's some amazing documentation in the book itself mm. um, of that. And then the latter half of the book is dedicated to the Bramley Apple. Yeah, it's a surprising uh, well, choice. It's of, kind uh, of, but then, well, so it, it becomes, because it's, again, a, a Bramley was one of the street names in the area and uh, in an act yeah. of solidarity, a lot of the people in Prestonia named themselves Bramley they all mm. took the family name Bramley. So um, so it's kind of a non sequitur in the book and on the artist's part, and it does, you know, make for interesting reading. But then when it comes down to it, you know, you're kind of like, oh, well, so he the the, the sculpture itself was a kind of stylized version of an, an apple. apple tree. Yeah. Um, but it all seems a bit of an aside, I suppose. You're right. It feels, I think what you're right in saying is that it feels like there's this huge amount of history um, and then there's this sort of um, the side note, this sidebar yeah. is this artist practice, well, perhaps that I mean, maybe hasn't fully integrated or re- resolved that. Well, I mean, I mean, I, I guess what interested me about comparing these two, I mean, I, you know, artist commissions, particularly for building sites, which mm. isn't an uncommon thing, is is hugely problematic, and the artists are generally bereft of a lot of choices, mm-hmm. and and so how they negotiate that and how they kind of come to accept it themselves is often. A problematic process that's quite interesting in itself, and so it, to me, it did seem that say the book was his way of getting something yeah, out of push, it, clawing, clawing something back a little yeah, bit. No, and, I mean, yeah. and, and as nice as it sounds, you know, to give new residents mm. a, a sculpture each, I, there's also that sense of like I don't know if they want it really, but that's fine. You know, it's it's a nice gesture mm. on one level, I suppose. And I think I think I remember seeing a photograph in the book of uh, one of the new residents, a kind of with bewildered a, man <laughs> sitting next yeah, to him. on a table. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But still, no. I, but then I guess it's that thing, and and maybe it's kind of easy to sort of look at it from this end and say, well, you know, he was standing by mm. as as this kind of, you know, another one of these housing projects that has very limited amounts of social housing when there was social housing there before mm. and that sort of thing. It, um, so I guess, yeah, the sort of unwritten link between these two is, is that they're both so- social housing estates or, you know, one's a newer manifestation mm. of that. And so the, I guess to me the question is what role can artists play in all of this happening? And in one case, you know, he's getting what he can out of it to try and make something mm. interesting. But in the end, it's sort of this weird kind of gift economy or a kind of handing down. Mm. And with Brennan, it was more sort of a, a problematizing I suppose, at least. And, you know, it, she's not offering solutions, but mm. she's at least trying to create a sense of discussion and a sense of, yeah. you know, at least let's talk about how we want this process to continue. Mm. Um, so the book itself is kind of filled with interviews uh, with the residents, some photographs by residents. She did a series of drawings that were just sort of rubbing mat, or, you know, they were people's welcome mats that she'd do rubbings with, but those were just excuses to get chatting to people, really, it seems, so... Um, so it kind of opens up quite nicely. Yeah, and she talks. I think she also talks a little bit about the kind of brutalist strategy or the, the idealism, let's say, that born uh, brutalist architecture in this country, and how the in these two things go hand in hand. That somehow the image of the demolishing of these brutalist estates, and I think Thamesmead is another example of that. Um, that these these sort of imi- these yeah these buildings are these last edifices upon which we can kind of see the emph- the 
the GLC or the kind of idea of social housing and how those two things are being taken apart simultaneously somehow? Well, yeah, but it's almost like the kind of Pruitt-Igo thing. It may be easy to kind of pin it yeah. on one thing being destroyed. I mean, but then uh, Robin Hood Gardens itself is a particularly good example, let's say, because like I say the ethos that they described it or that they designed it with originally was with these ideas of walkways in the sky, mm. you know, which itself was kind of related to early or kind of turn-of-the-century Soviet architecture as well. So there's this link of kind of communal thinking that's involved in the whole thing. But then the project itself, by the time it's realized, had a lot of issues that had changed as well. So I think um, it maybe embodies a lot of the difficulties of yeah how that housing is, uh, or those ideals have weathered, yeah. let's say. Um, so yeah, it, but yeah, I suppose it is a poignant symbol for all yeah. of that as well. Yeah. But within that, I suppose... what. I mean, a lot of debates have sort of centered on gentrification in the last few years. And specifically, I mean, one can say living in London, that how that's been felt, particularly for the people, uh, artists, say, and other people's uh, well, lives have, have kind of bit shifted or, you know, people moving out of the centre. And Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I had an interest in this book before it existed because I used to live around the corner and, and I was, but I mean, I was, again, part of this a symptom of the problem in the sense that I was in a live workspace that was a former housing estate that was mm. going to get torn down and so you knew it was just a matter of time but it was all part of the same development that's going to be happening and I guess what sort of brings me down the most about it is that the development that they're proposing is that generic sort of mixed use development where it's you know maybe like 50 social housing things and then mostly retail space and then just yeah. a lot of kind of nice apartments and it just becomes another generic space. Well, yeah, even the phrase affordable housing now seems to have lost or loses its edges, you know, somehow I don't know what that is, you yeah, know. Yeah, um, affordable. <laughs> yeah. And what, and developers have to give a certain quota and they I don't know, it's, it, the, you're right in the sense it's the, the traction on what these terms are they've sort of lost a kind of you know, it's harder to get, I feel it's harder to get a handle on, especially uh, the movement, you know, it seems like big corporations or sort of stepping in in a way between the government and so now that well then yeah and so that then it's this case of like what what role do artists feel they can take within that mm. i guess and that was kind of the interesting thing to look at in these two cases where it felt like coley mm. felt like he had to come in and, and act in basically a kind of traditional manner of producing something and and with brennan it's not like she's offering solutions mm. but she's at least acting in the role of a discussion creator um, which I think is is kind of a vital thing, and if an artist at, at this point in time is mm. able to act in that manner, then I think that's yeah mm. to be in, I don't know if encouraged is the right word or you know um, supported that sort of thing. Um, it made me also think of other kind of um, cooperative movements and co-ops in London. You know, the sixties and seventies seem to be much more awash with that kind of. Uh, that sort of enterprise and also squatters' rights and how they've been taken away. Mm. Um, do you think, I mean, do you feel, I, I feel like there's less options to kind of um, certainly squat or, you know, for artists to kind of take action in a direct way in terms of actually like owning a space. And I, I think, you know, um, you know, anyway, quick research on the kind of, you know, co ops and so on. Well, no, I, I mean, maybe that's why there's a lot of work that fetishizes mm. the idea of communes mm. and communality because it, it isn't uh, available to us anymore um, necessarily and um, yeah just in terms of what spaces I mean now you know even if we have 
some studio spaces that are getting supported yeah. for things that's on a very short-term basis. So then what happens in five years when this new supporting scheme runs out and then you just have to shift out to wherever? Well, yeah, further back <laughs> towards, yeah. Yeah. Thames meet well further 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 afield yeah. so I don't know I mean because I guess these were things that I felt were coming up and the other things we've talked about this evening already I guess is that idea of you know say with Chodzko if, it, if you make if you're trying to stick your hand in environmental issues can you actually do that and say with these cases of like whether Brennan or Coley can have an effect on mm. regeneration processes is obviously it's a question and uh, questionable or I don't know but there has to be an attempt towards creating discussion, I suppose, and that sort of thing. And or if it's like, in and I know there's that sense of a hyper awareness of community, or like if the artist isn't part of that community, then what the hell are they doing there? But yeah, again, again it feels like through their own practice they have to mediate those questions. And so, yeah, again, it's not the community; it's just sort of how we sort of, I don't know. And maybe it's Robin Hood Gardens again becomes a template rather than an actual place, mm. which is a danger. But um, I don't know. Does anyone else have any thoughts on social housing in this country? Or <laughs> <laughs> Where do we start? <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, I mean, I guess just to return to the books themselves, I suppose. I guess, you know, like... With, or, sorry, I didn't want to cut you off. No, I wasn't uh. really... Uh, I, I don't know the books, uh, so I was just thinking of another piece of uh, work, hmm. actually, which is yeah. Andrea Zimmerman's okay, yeah. Estate a Reverie, oh, yeah. Yeah. which I thought I was reminded of because of what you were saying about Jesse Brennan uh, interactions with, you know, setting up situations where she would discuss things with residents, etc. And what you're saying about Andrea Zimmerman, I don't know if you know her work, but she was actually uh, living uh, in on the Hagerston, I think, estate. So she was part of the community that she was filming as well but had to create these kinds of discussions about issues around documenting uh, the residents. Um, but it's a kind of an interesting... I haven't seen the whole film. I've just seen uh, a trailer for uh, a, a, at a screening. But what was... It's just about, yeah, negotiating other ways of mm. representing. And in even though this film was a documentary, it uses a kind of fictional... Uh, restoration dramas within it as well um, as a way of you know not yeah, not becoming yeah. just a, a proper uh, you know the kind of functional critique mm. in a sense um, so that's kind of interesting in relation to using more kind of fictional spaces in relation to yeah. the documentary and also yeah commu uh, for her it was very much about the community that she was part of and lived had lived with yeah. yeah, I think even Mike. I remember Mike Nelson proposed an Art Angel project. The Angel yeah. thing in, in Elephant and yeah. Castle, yeah, oh, yeah. that created that's, a lot of discussion. Yeah. Just partially because of he proposed a kind of ziggurat built from bits from the uh, from the the block itself. I yeah. think. and so uh, residents then petitioned until it was. There's a lot of really good discussion online that that you can find about it. Actually, I don't. <laughs> I don't actually feel. I yeah, it's, it's quite a deep. It's yeah. quite. It took up a lot of discussion, yeah. and it was actually pulled. But I, I actually think the project had a lot of value to it. Um, mm. It's a shame it was not seen through. Actually, but uh, in a way, similarly, the discussion around it was just as interesting. I think. Mm. Well, yeah, and I, I guess that 
and what I end up feeling out of Brennan's piece is that the the discussion, the more we talk about it, the better it is, or not the better. I don't know if it's just the cells <laughs> while the ship is sinking. I don't know, but um, yeah, the discussion and the the open public discussion of it is a necessary thing. But also maybe I don't know. The other interesting thing about the book was a piece by Owen Hatherley that was kind of talking about the history of social housing in that area for the past 100 years even. And so then it's not even just a, you know, it's not just a short-term problem mm -hmm. as well. And having a perspective on it, I think, is all the more beneficial as well. So that was quite a good part of it too. But. Okay, well, we're going to have to start drawing things up here. But uh, so those two books are still available. That's by Jesse Brennan and Nathan Coley. Uh, Raven Rose Show is still continuing, uh, I think, till 14th of February, if I'm right. And uh, the Adam Chosko film is available to see online at invisibledust.org. Uh, that leaves me just to thank, a uh, huge thank you both to Chris Wasilek, uh, Alex Fletcher, and Maria Walsh for joining us on this blustery evening. Many thank thanks. You.